Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Nat Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens! Coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening. For you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. There are, of course, those who do not want us to speak. We think that even now, orders are being shouted into telephones and men with guns will soon be on their way. Why? Because while the truncheon may be used in lieu of conversation, words will always retain their power. Words are for the means to meaning and for those who will listen, the enunciation of truth. And the truth is... There is something terribly wrong with this country, isn't there? You cruelty and injustice, intolerance and oppression, and where once you had the freedom to object, to think and speak as you saw fit, you now have censors and systems of surveillance coercing your conformity and... How did this happen? Who's to blame? Well, certainly there are those who are more responsible than others, and they will be held accountable. But again, truth be told, if you're looking for the guilty... You need only look into a mirror. I know why you did it. I know you were afraid. Who wouldn't be? War, terror, disease. There were a myriad of problems which conspired to corrupt your reason and rob you of your common sense. Fear got the best of you. And in your panic, you turned to... Our common ground. To be brave and speak with truth and courage about race. We promise you order. We promise you peace. We provide you sanctuary. And thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. Um, we want to uh, thank all of you for being with us and for your emails and for your input. I'm Janice Graham, and uh, this is where we speak boldly and bravely and without apology about issues of justice and truth and pain. In, the, in this America. Thank you for being with us tonight at Our Common Ground. We're going to be talking about restorative justice. Some people 
refer to it as reparative justice. It is an approach to justice that focuses on the needs of the victims and the offenders, as well as the witnesses and the involved communities, instead of satisfying some abstract legal principle or punishing the offender. Um, restorative justice processes take, where victims take an active role in the process, while offenders are encouraged to take responsibility for their actions to repair the harm they've done by apologizing, returning uh, what has been taken, and invoking their responsibilities and obligations to community service. So restorative justice involves both victim and offender and focuses on uh, their personal needs. Uh, it also helps provide to the offenders in order to avoid future uh, offenses. And it's based on a theory of justice that considers crime and wrongdoing and evil to be an offense not just against an individual or community, rather the state. So restorative justice is designed uh, so that we can foster dialogue between the victim and offenders and I believe that Our Common Ground has been part of restorative, a restorative justice project for the 28 years that we have been broadcasting. We often talk about our history being stolen as a black people. We often talk about even the humanity the infrastructure of our humanity haven't been taken. Our ability to really have a well-articulated, well-formed, well-defined collective culture having been stolen. And even if we look at the period post-neo-slavery, if we look at the Jim Crow period, we look at the civil rights period, the black power period, if we look at even the Obama era, we continue as a people through the pipeline of schools to prison, the mass incarceration, the growing unemployment rate in our community, the growing miseducation, under the continuing miseducation, the growing undereducation, and the explosive environment created where we have either one become invisible or two we have become demonized. How do we navigate? And that is what we're going to be talking with with Mike Blevins who is a social change and nonprofit professional with over 20 years experience in law, ministry, education and classroom teaching, community organizing and nonprofit leadership. He is the author of Restorative Justice, Slavery and the American Soul, 
a policy-oriented approach to the question of reparations. And when he joins us here at Our Common Ground tonight, we're going to be talking about not only restorative justice and how it works and how it can be applied to the evil of white supremacy, but we're going to be talking about mass incarceration and other aspects of what we have now come to call the new Jim Crow. And yes, we're going to be talking about reparations, because reparation, the reparative part of the justice process, is something for which it ought to be the goal and objective. One continues to be a victim until they are restored. And so we want to thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Before we have Mike Blevin join us tonight, one of the things that we know is that February is the official month where America pauses to focus on a history that has never been taught, a history that has been excluded uh, in the education of American children for time immemorial since this country was organized. So this great scholar and leader, w. Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois and, and Dr. Uh, Woodson uh, got together and decided that America really needed to spend some time on the on the achievements and the history of black people. And as Malcolm has always reminded us, we our history does not start in chains on the shores of Virginia, South Carolina, North Carolina. It started in another place that the best of us, is in the genetic link to that other place. So tonight, um, as we always do at Our Common Ground, I want to remind you uh, about facts that you may have missed in your education about black people. Facts, a black history note or fact that I think is important for us to know. Because if we are to ever understand our positioning as victims in a system of white supremacy and survive it, essentially being a witness on the bridge, then we really do have to have some insight into what is all this noise about black people in America. You know how they say, uh, well, race really doesn't count. Uh, race really is important. It's really not about race. Well, as Neely Fuller reminds us, if you do not understand race and how it works, everything else that you do understand will simply serve to confuse you. So tonight I'm going to tell you, on this last Saturday of Black History Month in America, I'm going to tell you about a man by the name of James Cameron. On August 7, 1930, James Cameron's life changed forever. A day before, he and two other, this is August 7, 1930, he and two other young black men were arrested for the robbery, rape, and assault 
of a white couple in Marion, Indiana. James is in a cell in the Grant County Jail. There is a lynch mob outside numbering into the thousands. James Cameron was 16 years old. The mob came into the jail and grabs one of the accused men with James of the crime. He is beaten unconscious, dragged outside, and lynched. The second man is then given the same treatment. The bodies of these two men, Tom Ship, age 18, and Abraham Smith, 19, hanging from a tree is depicted in a very famous and disturbing photograph I'm sure that many of you have seen. The mob now comes for James. He is beaten and dragged out to the tree where his friends now hang, and the rope is placed around his neck. It is at this moment that James Cameron remembers hearing what he describes as an angelic voice above the crowd saying to him, saying, take this boy back. He had nothing to do with any killing or rape. Suddenly the hands that were beating him are now helping him. The rope is taken from around his neck, and the crowd clears a path for him to walk back to the jail. In interviews he later conducted with people who were in the crowd, no one remembers hearing any voice. The reason for why the crowd did not lynch James was that he was simply lucky that night. Though James never admitted any guilt in the assault, he admits that he was there. He served four years in prison. The female victim later changed her story and confirmed that James had no part in the assault. After he was paroled, James Cameron moved to Milwaukee. During his career, he had several jobs, including table waiter, laborer, construction worker, laundry worker, salesman, janitor, ditch digger, record shop owner, theater, custodian, junk man, newspaper reporter, shoeshine boy, and card box factory worker. He also organized the Madison County Branch of the NAACP, NAACP in Madison, and other chapters in Muncie and South Bend, Indiana. Upon retirement, he opened a rug and a poster uh, cleaning business. In 1983, after not being able to find a publisher for the book he started writing in prison, Cameron took out a second mortgage on his home to publish A Time of Terror his autobiographical account of what happened that night in 1930. The following year, after hearing of plans to build a Jewish Holocaust museum in Washington, D.C., James Cameron decided that a black Holocaust museum was needed. He said at the time, it seems that every group of people have a chance to erect museums and memorials and statutes in our country so that the world can never forget. In 1988, James Cameron founded America's Black Holocaust Museum, a nonprofit museum devoted to preserving the history of lynching in the United States and the struggle of black people for equality. 
In addition to his book, Cameron did write uh, many articles uh, from publications around the world. He has been married to his wife, Virginia, for over 50 years. To, to, together they have five children, eight grandchildren, and four grandchildren, and four great-grandchildren. And you can get more information about America's Black Holocaust Museum and James Cameron at America's uh, BlackHolocaustMuseum.org. And that is our Black History Note for the last Saturday of Black History 2013. You're listening to Our Common Ground. And we welcome you and thank you for being with us. For those of you who are listening and you'd like to join us in our chat room, you can do so by coming to blogtalkradio.com backslash, that's the one going to the right, backslash OCG. We thank you for being with us. And when we come back, we're going to be talking with social change and social justice leader Michael Blevins. He is the founder, the founding executive director of the Iowa Peace and Justice Center in Decorah, Iowa, and is a human rights activist, and we're going to be talking with him about restorative justice, reparations, and mass incarceration in America. We'll be right back, and thank you for being with us. You don't get up and try to do something. God is not going to put it in your lap. There's no need of running and no need of saying, Honey, I'm not going to get in the mess. Because if you are born in America with a black face, you are born in the mess. Truth, 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 justice, justice, liberty, never resistance. Truth, truth, justice, justice, liberty, never resistance. Truth, justice, justice, liberty, never resistance. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Grant, and I'll be listening for you. And again, thank you for being with us tonight at Our Common Ground. Michael Blevins, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Janice. It's a it's a thrill. I've long followed your work and listened in and followed discussions uh, when I've been able to. So thank you very much, uh, and greeting to all of your listeners. Well, thank you. Uh, and, you know, before we get started, Michael, I want uh, to underscore to my audience tonight how difficult it is being a social justice act, act, activist in this country. Sacrifices have to be made because there's never enough warriors. And I want to thank you for the work that you have done um, in in your in your career. Your your whole life has been justice work. Um, 
give us an idea about how all of this came to 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 you, how you entered becoming a justice warrior, how you made those decisions. Well, uh, that's a great question because it's um, it's one that I I tried to um, to not hesitate to deal with personally uh, because activists, as you know, need to make sure that we monitor where we're coming from so that our agenda and our actions are not uh, coming from a dark place uh, or from um, unhealthy motives, but hopefully coming out of out of transformative um, love and a vision for for what Martin Luther King called beloved community. I, I must give a bunch of credit, Janice, to my mother and my dad. Uh, as you know, and thank you for your support in the last few weeks, my, my mother suddenly uh, passed uh, three weeks ago tomorrow. And she and my dad, who, who died four years ago, were both uh, very much... Um, uh, they very much instilled in me a sense of integrity and justice, not that any one of us, of course, is perfect, but inspired the need for that and uh, over and over again uh, uh, taught me lessons that set me on that general path. Uh, But uh, that would lead me to the second major influence in my life, and that would be uh, being raised in Topeka, Kansas. I was born and raised in Topeka, and for mainly historical and geographical reasons, Topeka has had a uh, a storied place in the history of slavery, Jim Crow, and uh, the continuations of institutionalized white supremacy. Uh, much of that history, especially early on, was very positive uh, because of the Missouri Compromise, we in the Kansas-Nebraska Act, that followed that uh, Kansas was the center of the debate in the early 1850s about which way our country was going to go in regard to slavery. And they were making a devil's bargain. And uh, Lawrence first, which is only about 40 miles west of Kansas City, and then Topeka, which is about an hour west of Kansas City, those and and all places in between became uh, the center of a of a blood rush, uh, a body count movement. Could we get more free slavers or more pro-slavery folks into Kansas because uh, a plebiscite would determine the status of the state? And that free-for-all led to to a lot of change, led to violence. John Brown came through, and uh, most of your listeners know of his freedom fighting uh, um, history, and uh, most of us are are proud of him. I certainly am. And the scholarship recently on him has removed him from the crazy crazy man category into a a true uh, activist uh, hero. And um, that's just one example um, in in northeast Kansas, but also... um, some of your listeners may know Langston Hughes, Gwendolyn Brooks uh, were born uh, in, in Topeka. Now, we, we claim them even though they ended up 
in Chicago and New York. Um, but um, uh, we have we have had uh, a lot of leadership because of uh, what was called the Exoduster movement after the Civil War. Um, there was a great migration. One of the great migrations uh, was <clears throat> to Kansas. And a lot of those folks, <clears throat> excuse me, settled in Topeka. They also founded a few uh, all-black, all all-African-American, uh, all mostly former slave uh, communities, including Nicodemus uh, in north-central Kansas. That uh, strong, strong presence of, of African-Americans in Topeka has shaped its history. It had a vibrant uh, African-American district before before segregation was outlawed in East Topeka and North Topeka and a wonderful, wonderful, the best place in town, of course, uh, was uh, the flats where the African-American central business district uh, was. And my dad, uh, being raised in uh, a, a poor part of town, frequented that uh, part of town with his buddies and and uh, told me stories, which was an influence. The um, the specific thing about Topeka that influenced me the most, though, was my fifth grade teacher, Lucinda Todd. Uh, she uh, was the organizing, initiating plaintiff in the Brown versus Board of Education case. She lived to be 96. She died in 1993. Um, I had no idea, Janice, about her history with that landmark case, uh, which caused uh, the, the greatest social upheaval. Um, not enough of one, but um, most uh, legal and cultural historians say that that case has had more impact on American society uh, since than any other before. And uh, I learned more about her life after she died, sadly, because I was never able to thank her specifically for that. I had thanked her for her role in, in my life as a teacher, and she was my favorite teacher growing up. The role she played as a, as a woman who who walked door to door to gather 1,500 signatures for Thurgood Marshall, Robert Carter, uh, Jack Greenberg, and others, including... Uh, some Topeka lawyers, uh, mainly the African American firm of the Scott, the Scott family, they all worked together to get the petition signed to do the groundwork uh, to have the NAACP legal team come to Kansas. In fact, they stayed in Mrs. Todd's house, which still exists. They sat around her oak dining room table, which I've I've seen uh, for a couple of years. It was in Washington D.C. at the Smithsonian Institution. Um, and uh, it was in that home that the strategy for the Topeka case was charted out, and it was filed. She was a witness. She's the one who wrote the letter to Walter White to have um, the team consider taking on the case, and, in fact, they did. She was secretary of the local NAACP team. As I delved into her life and her story, her 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 story is one, of course, of of she wasn't trying to make history, she just did it. She she uh, 
and in this part of the story, I want to tell it. It's a detail, but it's important because I know the focus of your of your mission is to activate the community, to act, <laughs> to uh, to not just think something, to not just talk about what change needs to happen, not to just uh, identify problems and uh, pontificate on on uh, solutions, but to go out there and get to work, to put shoulder to plow to uh, put uh, oneself out there on the line, to walk, to march, to speak out, to form organizations, to organize, to, um, by all means necessary, and uh, uh, we here incorporate both the message of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Uh, she was one that was kind of sitting in the background until one day, her seven-year-old daughter, uh, on a January day, cold day, went out, and there was snow and ice on the ground, and she slipped in front of her school bus. Now, the reason she had to take a school bus, Janice, was because though the white school was uh, just down the block, uh, she had to be bused because of uh, segregation uh, three miles away. Well, on this particular morning, the bus nearly ran over her, Nancy, and Nancy, by the way, with her husband, Raymond Noches, Noches live in uh, Austin, Texas. She's now nearly 70 years old. Um, Cindy, Mrs. Todd, was watching out the window and saw this, got angry. She was scared. She was angry. She marched down to the NAACP office and said, we have to take action. It's time to file the lawsuit we've been talking about for years. We've been going before the Board of Education every month, and they put us on the end of the agenda every month, and they harass us and ridicule us and make fun of us. And, yes, we don't have all the support of the African community, and much of the African-American community is against us because we're, everyone's vested in the status quo, and we're scared of change. We understand that, but this has got to stop. And that's when they took action. That's when the case uh, came to came to be. And on May 17th, 1954, the year of my birth, by the way, it's just another connection I feel, um, the history was made in society. And the death knell, the death knell of legalized segregation, of legal apartheid, uh, was a clarion call across the country. Uh, unfortunately, sadly, Jim Crow is alive and well through mass incarceration, through uh, continued problems in our health care system, unequal treatment in education, um, economic, you know, the networking that goes on uh, in our institutions and in our businesses is still very dominantly influenced by mostly subconscious white supremacy, but uh, whether it's conscious or subconscious, it's there and needs to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. That's a long well, answer. There have been other influences, many yeah. teachers and mentors, especially I want to call out Ray Winbush, Dr. Winbush, yeah, he's um, a, Ray and I have been friends for many, many years. Yeah, when I, I uh, ended up integrating uh, this uh, history with my, my – I was a history major in college. I went to law school. I practiced law as a trial attorney for 10 years. Then I went to seminary. Uh, my vision then of biblical justice was definitely a part of my sense of call and um, – but I, I uh, definitely began a journey from uh, probably a 
progressive, you know, the old school, uh, leftover Abraham Lincoln, even up to Mark Hatfield type of progressive Republican, to a fire-breathing, uh, far liberal Democrat. And as I did so, I find my I found myself in in my pastoral ministry after I went to seminary, which I was in for 15 years, ministry, not seminary. Um, the uh, I found myself in trouble in my denominations. I was asked to leave because of my support for same-sex uh, marriages in in two different denominations. So that's why after uh, years of ministry, I um, went back to school got a postgraduate degree in intercultural human rights from St. Thomas University in North Miami, Miami Gardens, a wonderfully uh, uh, diverse you know, set of communities, and uh, committed my career to to human rights. Mm-hmm. Then two years ago, we founded, uh, we started the Northeast Iowa Peace and Justice Center, which, uh, besides myself, uh, was initiated by the... Uh, I, I was basically issued a call by another organization that I was a part of that, in fact, I was a founder of, and that's the Decora Area Faith Coalition. And we had gotten very active in recent years with the labor and uh, race and uh, immigration issues surrounding the uh, terrible federal raid in 2004 of the meatpacking plant at nearby Postville, Iowa. And uh, I was very involved in, uh, and have been uh, involved in helping that community, helping uh, those new, those new Americans to uh, to transition through a lot of legal and uh, economic and uh, daily life suffering. So out of that, we decided we needed more of a visible, accessible presence to help people learn how to take action. It's one thing to be at home to see stuff on Facebook or get an email or talk to your friends and, and identify all kinds of problems and maybe talk about some ideas. But without organization, without a place to meet, without um, the encouragement of others and connecting with them and, and seeing your energy not be added to but, in fact, uh, multiply, it's rare for something to get started without that. Mm-hmm. Uh, occasionally history creates... Uh, opportunities. Uh, there are crises that, f- that force action, but we don't want to wait for crises. We want to be proactive. And so we started the Northeast Iowa Peace and Justice Center that's focused on uh, economic, social justice, uh, and also uh, we, we, we try to provide positive uh, training and uh, facilitation for conflict resolution, whether it be mediation or other forms of constructive conflict resolution. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the first time I saw your name, Mike, was back in 2006 in the Thurgood Marshall Law School Journal. You had written an award-winning piece called, uh, which was titled Restorative Justice, Slavery and the American Soul, a Policy-Oriented Approach to the Question of Reparation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At the time, you you recognized that that was groundbreaking thinking. That if in this country we were truly going to come face to face with 
on the issue of justice mm-hmm. of descendants of the slaves that a process of restorative justice would have to be applied, and one part of that was reparations. Reparations continues to be um, in both the public policy uh, and and civic uh, arena very controversial. How did you come to begin to look at the issue of of slavery as one, which was very unusual at the time, uh, an issue of justice? I mean, Mm -hmm. everybody else was saying it was history, and you were saying it's an issue of justice. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Well, the Lord said to Moses, if anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord about something stolen, when he thus sins and becomes guilty, he must return what he has stolen or taken by extortion. He must make restitution in full, add a fifth to the value of it, and give it to the right, rightful owner. Leviticus chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. I'm not a text quarter, quoter, but I know a lot of opposition to reparations comes, unfortunately, from from um, from the faith community, the white faith community, uh, that fails to realize the very, I think, obvious implications of of a common sense view of justice, but also uh, for their for their benefit, a theological basis. Also, um, Jesus um, obviously um, will consider this. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, "Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount." Jesus said to him, "Today salvation has come to the house." Uh, throughout. Throughout the history of um, of our world religions, throughout uh, uh, history, generally speaking, we have seen uh, that the arc of justice, as has been quoted many times, but perhaps uh, not as heated as we would want, the arc of of of, um, of, of the universe is long, um, but it bends towards justice, and it takes a while. The I wrote. Uh, that uh, thesis, restorative justice, slavery, and the American soul. Um, uh, the final version of it before it went to print was right after Hurricane Katrina, which made visible uh, for a brief, too brief time. Uh, and for, unfortunately, it was not. It, unfortunately, it had been too, too hidden uh, from too many folks' eyes. But it became more visible uh, how. Um, our history is is not past; it's present. Um, and the 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 eye of Scripture, those you know, if I have committed a sin, that that eye is is us, and the us, the United States, is a country infected as if it were a moral disease with um, with white supremacy, as Nell Painter has uh, most recently eloquently uh, described in her book the history of white people and tim tim weiss of course uh is someone that uh, uh is a colleague that that uh, folks if they're not familiar with him i recommend especially my my uh my my white kin that they that they read and get familiar with his programs he's also on on youtube a lot there's um this whole notion that we're 
were sick. And I, I, I believe that um, since white supremacy is at the as at the root of continuing institutionalized and uh, still uh, overtly personal racism, that we uh, that that whites need to to act. It, it's our country. It's uh, all of us that is in front of the bus, about ready to be run over by unresolved issues, by uh, uncorrected. Uh, now we're not going to, you know, there's there's no way we can correct uh, everything, but uh, we need to start. And I think that would happen through a truth and reconciliation or truth and justice process, much like uh, used in South Africa, Rwanda, East Timor, uh, Greensboro. Uh, uh, Tulsa, other places. And the reason that that corporate history is something that I and I would hope all of us would feel needs to be addressed is that uh, I've often compared the situation for my white friends and my students in my class to a basketball game where the first half was was based on uh, cheating and uh, egregious violations of the rules of basketball, and the score is uh, 100 to 5 uh, at the end of the first half, and then at, uh, at the start of the second half, the prevailing team says, oh, we're so, we're so sorry. Uh, of course, as a country, we haven't even apologized yet for slavery, much less gone through a truth and justice process or considered repara- reparations. But we haven't even done that. But let's say at the end of the first half, the team decides, well, this isn't any fun. Uh, so they apologize, and the other team kind of looks at themselves and says, is that it? And the leading team goes, what's the problem? And the team that's behind, of course, says, well, what about the scoreboard? I mean, there's no way. In a, <laughs> in a, mm-hmm. I mean, the past is now. The past is here. The past is in front of us, actually. The past is what uh, holds us back from a, a more vibrant, more more true to our identity history. Uh, I mean, true to our, 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 our notion about ourselves as a land that, that protects and promotes human rights. Right now, we're, we're arguably the most hypocritical and... Um, fatally flawed uh, major power in the, in the world. And uh, the truth and justice process could help us come to terms with that history, deal with it best we can, and then move on with, uh, with corrections made as much as possible, with investments made where, uh, where those look attractive, and uh, we'll have a whole lot more integrity and a whole lot more vibrancy, and uh, yeah, that's let me blah let me blah ask, blah. I'm blabbing a lot. <laughs> let me ask you about what your thoughts are about how the 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 um the uh, this working definition of restorative justice yes. that yeah. we're dealing with tonight, and and how it might apply to the evil of white supremacy. I woke up this morning, Mike, uh, first, and I know you go through this thinking about my mother. Uh, and uh, the second thing that came to my to my mind was the notion that 
our country is now the extraordinary maintainer of white supremacy across the globe. And I say that, and I thought that, because of the new drone base that is going into Niger. Yes, yes. Uh, And I'm (laughs) saying, wait a minute, we sent ships, we allowed Europe to take ships, boatloads of African people to capture them and bring them into this country as... A, 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 with with the bottom line being commerce and industry. So there was the corporatist uh, building public policy and embate, embedding a whole kind of slavery that had never been known before in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. And now we are taking our drone base uh, our drone bases into the into the African continent and doing something else for business and because we all know that this has to do with what corporations uh, both yeah, yeah. in United, led by the United States and paying homage to France and the UK and to China for the raping and pillage of Africa yet again. So we're, we're running the maintenance department and have been uh, for more than 500 years. That's so exactly, that's exactly right. That's, justice, pardon me? Well, restorative justice, I think, is, uh, well, let me just review uh, as you began to uh, what it is. The cardinal principles of restorative justice are the following. Restorative justice focuses on the victims, harms, and needs, not rules and laws. Secondly, restorative justice emphasizes the responsibility of the offender to make things right and sees, and sees punishment as secondary, secondary to restoration of those affected. And third, Restorative justice seeks to engage all stakeholders in a process of creative problem-solving that addresses the needs of victims and the responsibility of offenders and the good of the community, in this case, the global community. America continues to make egregious uh, errors and, and, makes and, and violates um, international law and, uh, as you said, uh, commits violence against the peoples of the world because it has not dealt with its own history. It's projecting, just as as we as individuals, as a defense mechanism against the ravages of our past, whether we're perpetrator or victim, we avoid that pain, we avoid dealing with it and try to keep it uh, as much under the radar as possible, and as a result, we go around uh, with invisible weapons of mass destruction, and that is our supposed goodwill. Hmm. Yeah. So how do we propose at this point to even begin to address 
um, white, I mean, uh, until, I mean, I, I look at how things have uh, fallen apart, as in the wonderful novel, things fall apart uh, mm-hmm. in South Africa, that uh, the Africanas are beginning to rise up against equality that has been established under the Mandela rule, and it's all falling apart. How do we begin in this country to install a restorative justice process to address the embedded systemic uh, culture of white supremacy? I mean, Mike, I can't tell you uh, after... I mean, I started being an activist when I was probably around six years old. Um, I mean, like you, like, um, um, and and so many children of our generation. Yeah. Well, let me tell Um, you what I've uh, proposed. As as you and most of your listeners know, um, Congressman John Conyers, a hero of mine, has been introducing... Uh, House Resolution uh, 40. And I want to make a note. He he introduced it for the first time on January 13th in 2009. He has introduced this bill every year, in every January since. Yeah, it goes nowhere. And there is still the the, uh, committee. uh, Yeah, he asked. The the bill is very modest. Uh, It it calls for the creation of a, of, I believe it's still a seven-person commission. A commission to study reparation proposals. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, I, I write in my, in my uh, work that, in, in my thesis that, perhaps one of the reasons why it hasn't gained more traction is it's not, it doesn't grab the imagination. It, it's not bold enough, in my opinion, in my view, uh-huh. it's not specific enough to hang on to, to get a hold yeah. of. And so I, let me, let I, me uh, overdo it for a yeah. minute for, for sure. our audience. H.R. 40 uh, is a bill to establish a commission to study reparation proposals for African Americans Act to acknowledge the fundamental injustice, cruelty, brutality, and inhumanity of slavery in the United States and the 13 American colonies between 1619 and 1865, and to establish a commission to examine the institution of slavery, subsequently de jure and de facto racial and economic discrimination against African Americans and the impact of these forces on living African Americans to make recommendations to the Congress on appropriate remedies and for other purposes. That's what you need to understand about this act. And the thing is, Mike, what scares me most as an activist for a long time is that people who really do believe in justice, people who really do believe that uh, American slavery, chattel slavery was evil, they're afraid of this bill. Yeah, um... It, it's it, it's part of the the uh, I, I think it's part of the, of what happens when um, a culture has been dominating and oppressing another uh, that most often 
to uh, the the uh, delight of the oppressor. The oppressed simply want it to be over with and move on, because uh, it's painful to review that history. It uh, it stirs up feelings. Uh, now those feelings get stirred up uh, by events that happen. Trayvon Martin. All kinds of events come, but but folks naturally uh, want to move on with their lives and often are busy enough just trying to to make it that they don't want to revisit the past. But the past, as I've said before, is with us and it's actually in front of us. Let me go through some of the details of my plan. That I think if if the kind of plan something something like I've, I'm just throwing this out here out there and it's been out there now for for uh seven years and we're just now seeing some action on it and i've i've talked to in cobra again lately and it's back it's back on the agenda and i may go to washington this spring when the when the uh judiciary committee hopefully takes up hr 40 in its current version and i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to be arguing in support of a of a more thorough process that would not end the South African uh, got a great start and made history, and that history will never be in vain. What was accomplished in 1994 uh, changed the world, and it's still changing the world. But it demonstrates what's happened since, that since every, everything is so economically determined that we need to keep keep about a truth and reconciliation process. We don't do it and then end it. Uh, uh, much of this white supremacy history, whether it's in South Africa or in the United States, and let there be no question about which is the, uh, well, we don't need to argue that, but I think the United States uh, uh, did the right thing in participating uh, finally uh, after the, the Reagan administration in, in uh, boycotting South Africa, but very, very hypocritically, of course. Uh, because our history of, of apartheid is, is is long, and it's an essential part of our history, uh, sadly. But here here's some details. I propose that we modify uh, Congressman John Conyers' um, bill by uh, doing this. Rather than a seven-person commission to study the issue and make recommendations, I suggest that a more detailed and comprehensive plan be prepared that calls for a series of truth and justice regional roundtables corresponding to each of the federal judicial districts around the United States under the supervision of an executive bipartisan commission of 12 experts from law, social science, and economics. This commission would be called the African American Redress Commission, or ARC, A-A-R-C, ARC of Justice and be appointed by a newly formed bipartisan select joint subcommittee on reparations formed from members of the House and Senate Judiciary Committees. The use of the concept and term redress is drawn specifically from the important restorative justice work of law professor Roy Brooks. I got to hear Roy and uh, uh, Mary Berry uh, uh, at a conference a few years ago that was just delightful. Going on, the regional roundtables would be convened by a convener from that district 
who would be appointed by the executive commission, who would entire, in turn hire uh, appropriate staffing. The convener would select and invite with the advice and consent of the executive committee no less than 30 and no more than 75 representatives and spokespersons of the most relevant stakeholders and organizations to participate as members of the roundtable. And then with the leadership of each district convener and facilitator, each roundtable would then conduct investigations, do research, hold hearings, make presentations, and most importantly, conduct a series of open, open community forums throughout their district to effectively solicit testimony and history from the public regarding the legacy of slavery, Jim Crow, discrimination, and to receive suggestions and identify resources toward finding solutions that could be incorporated into a restorative justice plan to combat the ongoing legacy of slavery. Each convener would then prepare a full report to the executive commission, which in turn would prepare a plan, including legislative recommendations, to submit to the Joint Select Committee on Reparations. This plan could be called the United States 21st Century Contract with African Americans. Each convener's office would take the responsibility for following through on worthy action plans of their reports that could be accomplished at the local level without waiting for further congressional action. The process, both local and national, could conclude with a consecrating uh, event, even a celebration to be held in Washington, D.C., um, which was built by African Americans. And it would be at that event where America's 21st century contract could be announced. Um, I also propose that this commission and that the uh, responsive legislative restorative justice processes be tied very specifically to the 400-year anniversary of the uh, evil commencement of slavery in the United States. Slavery, of course, began in Jamestown, Virginia. Perhaps that celebrative event could, or that commemorating event could occur there in 1619. Um, thus, uh, we've got a few, few years to get this thing uh, up and rolling. How, how in, in terms of implementation of amending the bill, how how much time would that take, um, Mike? Well, the Congress is two years, of course. Uh, we've just started um, the 113th session. Um, they each uh, it has to get assigned uh, to a committee, and then the committee chair can assign it to a subcommittee. Uh, can even form a new subcommittee if necessary. If it's if it's a uh, novel enough um, uh, bill, uh-huh. and uh, Ari is working on it right now. <laughs> oh, okay. Our, well, Ari Maritazen is is working on that as we speak, uh, and what folks like me are doing right now. We're at the stage currently, and this is what your listeners can do right now uh, to move this issue forward and to have an influence on what shape it finally takes is to contact the representative and the senators, but particularly the representatives right now, and urge that they co-sponsor H.R. 40. Mm -hmm. That's the thing right now to do. That's the action. Uh, 
and, and I'm posting in our in our chat room uh the link uh that people can uh write uh on reparations because you know one of the things Mike I mean I've been talking about reparations since I was in college that and, and to me I'll just put it out there that's a damn shame we've been talking about the same thing it's <laughs> terrible it's it's yes if it wasn't for sunshine and your uh, favorite beverage, it'd just get downright depressing. I, it's yeah, awful. But, but I think, you know, we know that there are tipping points in history. Uh, it, the early 90s w- was incredible. Uh, from 89, you know, with the fall of the Soviet Union to South Africa, that was an incredible season, and it won't be the last. Yeah. And, and the thing is, people have to be a lot more bifurcated about uh, uh, the injury. I mean, I, I say on this broadcast every Saturday night, I lived in Jim Crow. I attended segregated schools. Mm-hmm. I walked down to toward my school for uh, eight or nine blocks. For elementary school, I mean, for three blocks for elementary school, eight and nine blocks for junior high school, and school buses filled with white children pass me every mm. morning. Mm. Um, I didn't know what it was like until I was a junior in high school not to go to go to a regular. Uh, the theaters weren't integrated. Um, I mean, I know what a doctor's office looks like that has a separate door, even though I never went to one of those doctors because my parents never would have allowed it, a separate door and a separate waiting room for coloreds. I know what that is like. I I mean, I lived that. Mm -hmm. I lived while my parents paid taxes while my grandfather loaned money to the city that I lived in because they had no money and they couldn't make their payroll, I know what it's like not to go to a public park that was maintained by taxpayer money. The parks that I played tennis in, the parks that I went to, was maintained by community organizations and churches. Well, I speak out to my my, uh, white... Uh, brothers and sisters, and say this. This is a quote from Alice Walker that just uh, really influenced me a while back. You have to go to the places that scare you so that you can see what do you really believe. Exactly. Who are you really? Are you prepared to take this all the way to wherever the truth leads you? Yeah. And accept and, and you I, have I to figure out that... different ways of confronting reality. We have got to hear stories and voices like yours at the grassroots level. That's what truth and justice uh, processes, processes are all about, is getting those stories on the record. Mm-hmm. And and the thing is, even as we re- repaired what we thought or, or changed what we thought uh, our history should not be, and this whole integration process, and I spent three years in an all-white high school with 900 other students and I was the only black student, that was injurious as well. Oh, oh so sorry. <laughs> I mean, and I hope, Ann Levington, I hope Ann Levington, who has been my oh, lifelong geez. friend since high school, who 
who kind of rescued me uh, in the first day. Um, I hope she's listening. She continues to be my friend. And the and the point about that is that this was Palm Beach High School. So it was nothing okay, but... Okay, there, there, went, there went my sympathy. You had a beach. <laughs> no, no, but, but what I'm saying is it was filled no, with, with children who came from wealth... Yes, privilege. ...and privilege. Yep. What's wrong with wealth and privilege? Exactly. There's nothing wrong with wealth and privileges as long as you're willing to give it away. Yeah, and, and I really wanted to bring it to how these injuries continue to conflate. Yeah. They conflate by us not being able to change the way we operate our systemic machines in this country. Um, I mean, poor man, he was elected by, look at all the people who voted for Barack Obama to be president, but all of the privileged few, the wealthy and the the corporate corporatists and the members of Congress who still see him and treat him like he's a boy. Yeah. We're going to have to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking more with Mike Blevin. He is the uh, founding executive director of the Northeast Iowa Peace and Justice uh, Center. He is a human rights and social change activist, uh, and he specializes in the issues of nonprofit leadership, community organizing, human rights advocacy, and he teaches ethics and philosophy at the college level. Um, and he is an ordained minister. Uh, so we have to talk about some stuff going on in faith community. You're listening I'd like to, to carry our... your briefcase. <laughs> You're listening to That's our That's what I would really ground. like to do. And we thank you for being with us, and we will be right back after a short break. Who champion this cause of something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong, but I don't know what it is. And then he set her up by backing off. Well, if she will come and talk to us. Right. Yeah, and she yeah, came yeah. and talked to you, not alone, she came and talked with the CIA guy. Sure did. And he basically backed up everything she said, but now they have larger concerns. Now they're crying and whining about the filibuster and the reform of the filibuster. Not only should they reform the filibuster, they should drop the nuclear option on the filibuster. And when you hear people like Mitch McConnell saying that if they do this, this will poison the well forever, well, I'll take your threat and I'll raise you to shove it in your behind. Right, Robin, and Reason. Advanced Urban Progressive Political Talk Radio. The Alpha Show. Only at TruthWorks Network. Friday, 10 p.m. How 
wants to know why I'm fine one minute and the next, my body aches so bad I can't move. I want to know why my hair is falling out. I'm only 17. I'm tired all the time. Now, this rash. I just want to know what's going on. When you don't have the right answers, it may be time to ask your doctor the right question. Could I have lupus? For answers, for support, for hope, visit couldihavelupus.gov or call 1-800-994-9662. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office on Women's Health and the Ad Council.
establish a new kind of Jim Crow. I want to talk about that, Michael, and get your your thoughts about the mass incarceration of black and brown people in this country uh, and the massive impact that it is having both uh, uh, economically and socially in poor communities. Because I I think the thing is that uh, it's coming around to, to, to this whole notion that this is a war against poor people and people, I hate the term people of color. I cannot stand that term. Uh, 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 immigrants, black people, Latino people, uh, anybody that is not white, wealthy, and privileged. Um so I'd like to get your your thoughts about that, and I'd also like to open up our lines because we we only have about 40 minutes uh, to go in this program, uh, and people are wanting to talk with you. Uh, but talk to give us some ideas about how restorative justice, how justice activism, can begin to affect breaking up this new system of oppression well as as uh as michelle alexander uh who has authored the landmark book the new jim the new jim crow mass incarceration in the age of so-called uh color blindness has written and documented very eloquently i'm so pleased and i'm sure you are too that that book has really taken off uh, and it's creating discussion groups all over the country. We had her here at the Northeast Iowa Peace and Justice Center last March, and um, she spoke at the campus of Luther College here in Decorah and also um, at our center. And um, there are, and it's extremely encouraging, I think, the number of criminal justice initiatives being being uh, started, being revitalized, being revisited, being newly energized, with this analysis that that sheds light on the clearest manifest, manifestation of our own ongoing legacy of white supremacy, and that is mass incarceration. We have the highest rate of incarceration in the entire world. We have one-fourth of all the world's prisoners in our jails and prisons. Uh, African Americans are way overrepresented, and it's not, as she points out, because of of uh, more crime it's simply because of unfair administration of justice which begins at the street level stop and frisk is is a reality uh, that even progressive um, community leaders have defended and are defending uh, even while it's a, a clear violation of civil and human rights not only domestically but internationally and, and by the way I haven't mentioned yet that reparations and restorative justice are principles that arise out of our international law. And international law in the United States, contrary to what Tea Party folks say or any any other conservative of whatever political stripe, of whatever party, I mean, it is the law of the land. Article 6 of the Constitution says our treaties are the supreme law of the land. And we have entered into civil and political international human rights covenants that obligate us as promised in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that we will 
protect and promote uh, rights to not be unreasonably searched and seized. And it is unreasonable to be stopped on the street because of the shade or the look of your skin or the type of clothing you have or the location where you are at, as long as it's public property, you have no reason being stopped, but it happens every day. It's happening right now. And that leads and that reinforces centuries of depression that white America has pushed into the African-American community. And we expect, I'm speaking of us whites, we expect African-Americans, black Americans by association because of, unfortunately, their skin color, to be able to get over it. Just get over yeah. it. Yeah. No. I mean, people have we actually cannot. said that very directly to me. There was someone in our chat room tonight who was essentially saying, get over it. Well, you... <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it would be it would be it would be real nice uh, to erase that part of history. Unfortunately, we can't, and since we can't erase it, we have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, for our own sake, and I'm speaking to my white brothers and sisters, because this is like a family secret that haunts us. It's. It's and it's also, um, it's also corrupted the very some the very substance of our society, and it mm-hmm. keeps us from the best solutions for our economic problems now. Yeah. Because yeah. white supremacy is one of the reasons why corporations now have free speech. That comes from white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well. A democratic movement, one that goes back to the grassroots, one that hears the stories and and deals with them where it can, is is going to put a check on the power of undemocratic forces as well. So we we need it politically too. Yeah. As you see, I I try to use the truth and justice language more than I do reparations because reparations uh, is. Is, is really a noun, and we got to be about the verb mm-hmm. of reconciling, of doing justice. Micah six eight. What does the Lord require of you, but to ignore the past, to pretend it didn't happen, to ask those who your forefathers and mothers oppressed, whether intentionally or not, they did. You want them to get over it? No. What does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, not to claim justice, but to get out there and do it, and to love God, and uh, to love mercy and walk humbly with God. There's a lot of mercy in the truth and justice process. There has to be, because nobody's hands are completely clean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They found that out, they, they have found that out wherever they've gone through this process. So it's not us and, and versus you know, one them. Of the things, one of the things that is so important is that as victims of uh, the American system of oppression, uh, enslavement, and of uh, continuing oppression. I had another word, but I've lost it. Uh, But uh, one of the things that we have to do is to ensure that we are engaged, 
that we are the people who build the infrastructure for that process. And I am so glad to hear that you have made some recommendations around uh, the process uh, around the HR 40 uh, because I think that it has become stagnant because people can't see the structure under which it's going to happen. No, it's it's, it's overwhelming. It's absolutely overwhelming yes. if you don't start somewhere with a plan that has exactly. enough structure and substance to it so that you can begin to see other things spin off of it or be empowered by it. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it it's sort of like the skeleton that could support yeah. an organic movement. And, again, it, it would need to, um, in, in, in some measure, keep on happening. It would have to be an ongoing process. It, yeah. it's, about, it's about not just uh, the history of slavery, of Jim Crow, the black mm-hmm. codes, uh, lynchings, uh, day uh, every day untold sufferings. The middle passage, for crying out loud, uh, the United States, uh, that, that, was, that was legal f- uh, f- for, for, you know, 200, three, 250 years. And, uh, and we have yet to even apologize. Mm-hmm. And, and people have to also connect the dots, and the dots are really around looking at the acquisition of wealth, the loss yeah, of wealth yeah. because of oppression and, and tactics used in the neo-slavery period and during Jim Crow. I mean, we all know about Tulsa, Oklahoma City, Rosewood. We know about the sticks. We, I mean, it, ha- it just didn't happen in those places. Those are the places that were, were chronicled. Well, I think, happened, the, uh, I think the cemetery, the cemetery in New York, the slave cemetery in New York, uh, that has in the last decade been, um, well, uh, desecrated. However, the upside is that part of our history uh, has been uh, brought to the surface, literally, and um, it's a symbol, I think, of the truth of the United States. The United States. Our history, contrary to what black, uh, and I know the purpose of, of February and Black History Month, yet we, we struggle with it, don't we? Because the history of the United States is the history of African Americans uh, and other immigrants. But, um, you know, you can't separate the history of African Americans. They are buried under the wealth the systems, the corporations, the institutions, the educational institutions, everything of value. Uh, and to their credit, some of the banks, some of the corporations are starting to look into their history. Some of the uh, religious denominations are coming to terms and beginning to investigate how they contributed to, how they benefited from, and how they have failed to actively fight for um, a truth and justice process that could result mm-hmm. In repair work, which is what re- reparations are, it's not necessarily. Right. Uh, I think it will involve money. It will involve investment in the right community structures and institutions and enterprises and projects that could help uh, encourage um, uh, the, the dismantling of all of those systems that that continue to benefit from being 
um, uh, white. So yeah, and we uh, run around. Belinda's petition is a book written by Ray Wimbush. I'm sure you're familiar with, and many of your listeners are. Ten practical things um, he's pointed out in Appendix B. Ten practical things you can do for the reparation struggle. Right. Uh, Belinda, of course, was uh, a, um, a former slave and in the North who demanded reparations. Yeah. Uh, but after he's made that uh, discussion, he he suggests these. Uh, these ten. Read about the history of the reparation struggle. Uh, find out who Queen Mother Audley Moore is and who Reparations Ray are. Go to the N uh, apostrophe Cobra C O B R A website. I just in our chat. Yeah, or the Cure C U R E, which is the Caucasians United for uh, Racial Equality, uh, and uh, look at Roy Brooks book, um, or Ray Winbush's book, uh, uh, Reparations, Should America Pay? But read. Read online. Read books. Mm-hmm. Go to right. your library. Secondly, join an organization. Join the Northeast Iowa Peace and Justice Center. If you don't have a Peace and Justice Center in your community, start one. Yep. If you okay. uh, find an organization... Our phones, you... Otherwise, you're going to have people really angry at me. All right, um, I don't want them angry with you. Just go no, to Appendix um, B, folks, and there's 10 great ideas. Our number is 347-838-9852. Yeah, we want to spread the love. We don't want to get And we're going to ask you to be precise and stay on the issue of restorative uh, justice, right. reparations, truth and justice, H.R. 40, and what you think that you, how you could participate in a restorative or reparative justice process. 404, you're up first. Thank you for your call. I respect you. Yeah, yeah. How you doing, Ms. Jennings, and your guests? Hey, look here. Uh, Big wet. Yeah, yeah. The thing that can be done right now, first of all, uh, go back 10 years or 20 years to uh, people that pay their debt to society that need their records expired. Uh, uh, Okay, yes. and then, okay, uh, that that we can be do right now for the people right, right here. Twenty years that, that they hadn't done that, that had their record clean. Okay, and this whole reparation thing, corporations. Let's start matching up these corporations these are with the people that was enslaved. I.e., it's records of that in Utah. Let's match up the families with these corporations because uh, it, it was made thirty million dollars a year for five hundred dollars. Uh, for 500 years, that's how much money these corporations made. $30 million a year times how many years people were enslaved. So mm-hmm. we must match up the families with these corporations so these families can get paid for their ancestors' work. That's the only way to do it, man. Other than that, you talk a lot of BS. But I listen to my talk, Miss Janice, and you can mute me because I'm pissed off with this guy there. He's BSing. Well, you know, the thing is, Big West, that. The process in this this country has never engaged in a process. Well, it's it up hasn't to us to do it. It's, it's up to us know, to do they, it. You know, they they let you go to the they let you go. They open up the schools and said, okay, we'll integrate the schools. And thirty years later, the schools are segregated again. They said we will make pass a law. This is what we'll give you. We'll pass a law that says that they can't. Uh, use race race discrimination uh, in employment. 
Never well, look at Miss Janet. Look at look at it's documented that in, in that in Carroll County, Mississippi, Miss Lulu McCain or Lily McCain is is a direct descendant of McCain, John McCain. That's in Congress, flapping his big gun. His family has slaves. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. That's that lady should be paid in Carroll mm-hmm. County, Mississippi. Look it up. Look it up, y'all. Okay, this is bunch of BS. We got to match our families to these corporations. Simple as that. Forget about the government. I hope it's both. I, I hope it's both. I, the disenfranch, disenfranchisement is one of the issues that uh, criminal justice reform is focused on right now, and things are happening state by state. Uh, there are some, uh, and we've got to demand and act for uh, laws that uh, bring back voting rights. And of course, our our criminal laws generally are are racist. They're too they're too, in terms of uh, criminal uh, sociology, they don't work. They're punitive. They make the problem worse. Uh, they incarcerate uh, innocent people. Um, it's a mess. And yeah. we need to. Last uh, congressional session, uh, Congress voted down uh, a bill that I went to Washington to lobby for, and that was to establish. A National Blue Ribbon Commission to um, modernize, to reform our our uh, criminal procedures, our sentencing laws, to restore sanity uh, to the system if possible. But you're you're right. In the meantime, until these things take place, to make sure things happen across the country and not just on an isolated case by case basis, we at the same time those. We need to get the information out that you have and others have and take action on those specific cases right now. I agree with you 100%. I'm just I'm the kind of guy though that uh, is a, is you know because I'm a lawyer and I, I I see some of the possibilities for legal change and I want to help that happen. Um and I want to help uh I I just want to see it happen. Yeah. So you in Florida sir, are you practicing law in Florida? No, uh, no, I'm not uh, practicing. I'm licensed in Kansas, but uh, the ministry and uh, yeah, the ministry brought me to Northeast Iowa, and that's where I am. All right, Miss Jen, you can let somebody. But I know, about, right. I know a okay, bunch Pat. of lawyers. I know. Okay. I know. Well, visit visit the link that I posted in the chat room and learn more about the reparations movement in this country. Thanks for your All call. Right. I'm putting you on Hey, you. thank you, thank you, thank you so right. much. Yeah. Okay, we're going to go to 610. Thank you for holding. You've been holding for quite a while. Hello. Yes, hello. You're on the air. Yes. I respect you. And uh, I definitely respect you and yours, uh, Brother Brock, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hello? Hello, hello Brother Brock. Good to see you from hello. Philadelphia, PA. And I will make it fast because it's uh, noisy in the background. Uh, basically, I just was curious. I know that your organization that you mentioned it's fighting for reparations. Uh, yes. John Connors put the, the, the bill out, and I've been to Washington with some of his trips, not his trips, but the activist trips to support that same bill. Uh-huh. And it just seems like it's not galvanizing traction with other politicians and or right. other people that are actual Democrats. So, and then the excuse we hear that why it cannot fly is, it's going to cost too much money because it's you know it's going to the trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. So, what what do you see in the near horizon that could make this 
get to the next step because obviously with a, a person, a president of color, we still haven't seen it yet. But is this second term? Do you think it'll come about as far That's as a great uh, question. being I talked think... about or not? Yeah. Uh, well, I haven't been there personally, but I'm I'm hearing from my friend Ari in uh, in Philadelphia that it's that it's uh, that there's more energy, there's more collaboration happening. Uh, I'll know for myself when I go out, hopefully, uh, this spring. The uh, What we do in the meantime until uh, the stars come together is we just, each of us do what we can to keep plugging along, keep doing it. Uh, Mrs. Todd, yeah. uh, Mrs. Todd and the president of the NAACP back in my hometown of Topeka went to the Board of Education once a month for four years until they... Uh, until the elements came together and they took the action to file that Brown versus Board lawsuit, um, we have to keep plugging away. I, my my part in it is going to be suggest changes, uh, and I, I use social media to advocate for for change beyond uh, my immediate. I, you know, we've got a committee here in the, at the Northeast Iowa Peace and Justice Center that deals with uh, racism and also with criminal justice reform, and uh, we're, we we conduct. Uh, uh, town forums, we've had guests speak, we've got action groups that are lobbying for changes at the state and uh, national level. Um, we, on, we honor holidays and, and use those as teachable events to uh, remind uh, this part of white America that uh, every, every part of the United States benefited from white supremacy uh, in, a, in a very, uh, uh, oh, I, I put quotations around benefited because actually it was a ticking time bomb, and uh, and the wealth we have is uh, is, is blood money, and uh, we we need we need a reckoning. And yeah, you mean it might two two three four five trillion dollars? You mean it might it might cost as much as bailing out Wall Street? <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my last think... point. My last point before I hang up, and you can read my mic, but just you know, a lot of our own people don't want to support this bill. So somehow or another with the new social media, we need to get a clearer message as to what was stolen and why we deserve to get it back as opposed to somebody, our own people, thinking we're requesting handouts. So somehow or another, this message not to be changed. So if you well, use you my know, mic, so I can keep listening in the background, Ms. Tanner. Okay. Thank you, Brother Brock from Philadelphia, PA. Thank so you, Brother Brock. Um, Mike, is that we've got to have the clarion call. Now, the clarion call at Our Common Ground is resistance, rebellion, reconstruction. I'm going to add uh-huh. another aura. You just said it, reckoning. Yeah, yeah we reckoning. We have got to have a clarion call for reckoning. Absolutely. You know, and one of the things that I'm sure um, uh, my dear brother Alpho is sitting out there saying, it ain't going to never happen. It is not going to happen until we change the character of how we deal with power in this country. We have got to stop focusing on money because we don't have any. We have got to start focusing on power, and power is not necessarily money. And that's where I'm coming from, Mike. 111, you're on the air with Mike Blevins. Thank you for your call. I respect you. Hello. How you doing? Good, thank you. Good to hear you. All right, all right. Where are you calling from? I'm New York City. And your comments? Um, Are you getting any snow? Um, no, we're just getting rain where I'm at. It's, it's just a little wet. 
Um, my, my, I agree with the with the last caller. I just definitely wanted to say that um, I think uh, us as black people or whatever you want to call the uh, the the black man um, should be uh, educating themselves. Um, I think that we shouldn't expect uh, to learn this from schools. I think that uh, adults should teach their kids, uh, you know, as much information as they can. Um, I think by studying is studying the law, um, black law dictionary, um, mm-hmm. and, and things of that sort will will actually put us in position. I think people that that are in a financial situation should be, uh, uh, you know, going forward with certain things to to make some type of uh, uh, movement to, you know, get what's due. And if not, um, I, I would feel we should now in our days uh, just try to empower ourselves as of now in the sense of, you know, like I said, education and trying to, uh, uh, you know, uh, save money when you can and, and, and not uh, fall into the same thing that's been going on for years because it's not like they always put a, a blindfold over the eyes, yeah. you know, with the entertainment and things like that, and we get caught up in, and, and like, I, I would say sidetracked with all the things while, you know, government continues doing what they do. So I think education is very important from the adult level down to the to the young ones. Um, and the ones in financial situations uh, should uh, put their money to to work for them, you know. Absolutely. I uh and to, the key to doing that is for for you and uh callers like you and uh people uh with your heart and mind and and uh, commitment in your neighborhoods uh to uh, organize. And our motto here is research, education and action at the Peace and Justice Center. And it can be uh any place where folks can hang out to come and organize and at the local level Truth and justice can happen, and uh, you know my proposed legislation would create a national structure to enable this to happen in every uh, jurisdiction, whether they do it voluntarily or not. But there's nothing stopping you and I uh, from organizing truth and justice uh, uh, gatherings, uh, projects at the at the at the neighborhood level, at the uh, community level, at the regional level. Find out the facts, who did what, who got what, who suffered what, and get that recorded, get that out there. Social media is a wonderful, wonderful tool now. And um, then come up with action plans, research, education, action, to-dos. And there's a a lot to be done based on that history that you'll discover that you can do at the local level. And uh, go to your city councils, go to your county supervisors, um, and to uh, corporate um, shareholder meetings, um, to the state houses, to at least keep the issue visible. Um, and in the meantime, some of us will try to get the the laws to um, facilitate change on a national level. Yeah, you can have said it better. Um... I just want to, um, you know, commend the sister for having this platform. I think she's definitely doing a, a, a great service to the people. And um, like I said, for me, all I, I could say for our people is um, education is very important, key. Um, and people that want to make change, get in position, you know, study what you need to study and get the degrees you need to get so we yep. can get in, in those places so we can have our people 
you know, whether black or white, working and helping to to better our, our country as a whole. Well, thank Have you, a great my night. brother. All I know thank is by the sound of your voice and what you say, I love you. Yeah, we do. We 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 have some we have some very very thoughtful, considerate uh, people who listen to this broadcast, and we have some people who are committed. Uh, uh, India Declare of the I Declare show that broadcasts Monday through Friday at at eleven a.m. Um, uh, was with us tonight, um, and and one of the things that we do have to do is we do have to pay attention. We can't always be uh, behind the ball. Um, Dr. Raymond Wimbush has, over the last five years, maybe been on this broadcast five or six times. Uh, When he published Belinda, he was with us, and Belinda is one of my um, aberrations that walk with me every day. Um, one that's in a, it, it, this is the one that could be used in groups, in neighborhoods, and families to do that educational work that our brother was absolutely. was emphasizing. And if someone wants, in in our chat room, should America pay? Uh, it is a and he, been a he was also arguing for not. for those with he was also arguing for those with means to invest. One thing uh, one thing someone with uh, the financial means could could provide this book for organizations for neighborhoods, for libraries, uh, 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 provide it to uh, legislators. If there's any single book, I would recommend Belinda's Petition by Raymond, Dr. Raymond Winbush. Absolutely. Um, so w- one of the things, and we, we're going to have to take a break, and when we come back, I do, oh, I, I do want to talk with you about the most recent uh, yes. event in our country yes. having to do with Christopher Donner. Yes. And the issue of justice and 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 how our our justice system, uh-huh. the system, uh, the culture of justice in this country is corrupt. Uh, our Rick. guest tonight is Mike Levin. He is the executive, a uh, founding executive director of the Iowa Peace and Justice Center in Decorah, Iowa. Uh, he is a human rights activist. Strategic planning and community organizer and nonprofit social change leader. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. Our number is 347 838 9852. I'd like to thank the brother that just called from New York for his kind compliment. Mm -hmm. We, We insist on broadcasting bold, brave, and black, because that is our mission. We'll be right back. History, culture, society, politics, music, sports, commentaries on the Times Radio with Plato Benjamin, Two Parts Network. Thursdays, 10 p.m., premiering February 21st. Thursdays, 10 p.m. You're listening to Our Common Ground at Blog Talk Radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Join our community at Facebook. Support us by blogging 
and leaving us comments so that we can continue the work transforming truth to power one broadcast at a time. But he can't be buried. They said he's dead, but he can't be buried. Come on, come on, come on, come on. This can't be real. I think one of the things that we, that the black church needs to ask itself is what is its mission? What is its mission? Um, I think one of the things that the black church has lost is a good understanding of its mission. Black church is good at preaching, good at singing, good at uh, a lot of things, but black church has not been as good as thinking about what its nature is and thinking about what its mission is. Is its mission primarily saving souls? Or is it saving bodies? Or is it both together? I think if you see them both together, I think you would have to see that the black church has to be political because politics is a part of life. It also has to be concerned about saving souls because you're listening to our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. They all trying to teach us what they think is right. They really got to be some kind of automated. What are we for then? We're consumers. Ah, okay, okay, buy a lot of stuff. You're a good citizen. But if you don't buy a lot of stuff, if you don't, what are you then, I ask you? What? I say, ill. Back, Jim, back. If you don't buy things, toilet paper, new cars, computerized dunder, electrically operated, sexual devices, serial systems, and brain implanted headphones, screwdrivers, miniature built-in radar devices. I don't really come from out of space. <laughs> it's a condition of mental divergence. I find myself on the planet Ogo, part of an intellectual elite, preparing to subjugate the barbarian hordes on Pluto. But even though this is a totally convincing reality for me in every way, nevertheless, Ogo is actually a construct of my psyche. I am mentally divergent in that I am escaping certain unnamed realities that plague my life here. When I stop going there, I will be well. Are you also divergent, friend? Our common ground. We don't sell you anything. We point you somewhere. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Remind you that we are here each Saturday evening, 10 p.m. 
it is independent black media where we don't sell you anything, we just point you to something. And next week at Our Common Ground, joining us will be Ms. Florence L. Tate. From 1963 to 1977, a civil rights activist, black power advocate, journalist, and press secretary, she was placed on the FBI's surveillance list for her political activities, and she is still uh, a child of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, and she was indeed uh, the press secretary. Uh, that opens uh, her files coming to our common ground, revealing the maddening complexity of America and Americans. And thanks again to Mike Blevin, who is with us tonight, talking reparations, mass incarceration, and the new Jim Crow. And now, Mike, I want to ask you, let's talk for a few minutes. We only have a few minutes and get your impressions about how the Christopher Donner um, uh, event applies. Yeah, I I hope uh, Christopher Donner's um, story, his voice, his suffering, his his murder um, helps shake the thinking and souls, the hearts and minds of of influential people in the criminal justice system and beyond. Um, He's a victim of that system uh, and also of the military, uh, both of which are corporate-run, corporate mindset, hierarchical, oppressive in their own ways, and full of racism. How can white America... Or how can the United States, it's infected to its core, throughout its limbs, in its brain, with white supremacy, placed there over a period of 400 years, not yet excised? How can we expect all the poison, all the disease, all the suffering, all the hate that gets piped through our systems and once in a while find a sensitive, thinking, feeling person, and there becomes a volcano, like magma that comes up through the cracks of a fractured earth, the legacy of slavery, of Jim Crow, of the new Jim Crow, the imprisonment of millions and millions of people, unnecessarily, wrongfully, It's a cultural genocide, and once in a while it erupts as as if it were a volcano, naturally, and in this case, tragically. The best white American can do to redeem his unnecessary death, and let's make no mistake about it, that hot grenade or whatever was used, uh, that, uh, that, that was intentional by any logical, common sense view of the definition of the term his death his execution and those who shared his his story those whom he killed but he was a tool 
He was he was the one who erupted because of his sensitive mind and heart. How can white supremacy turn away and say, too bad about him, too bad about the others who were victimized by the situation? What if we hear each other? What if we listen to each other? What if we tell our stories? What if we have a town meeting we can go to? What if there's a website we can send our stories to if we don't want to go to a meeting? What if our leaders said, it's time before we do anything else, priority number one, what if that priority is dealing with our national history? It's not It's not the history of black America. It's the history of the United States that has oppressed African Americans and many, many others. What if we said our number one priority was to pay attention, to take care of business, to have a reckoning, to have a family meeting, and say, we're not leaving this place, we're not ending this meeting until we deal with this issue. That's what the United States does. Until it does that, it's going to wallow in the muck and mire of deficit talks, of sequestering talks, of tweaking this and that infected institution, when what we need to do is go to the very basics of of the best intentions, the highest intentions of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and and the, the tribal the tribal covenants and the community uh, values and standards that we treasure and say we must make this our issue. And it's going to turn out well. It's going to make a positive difference. It's going to give us more than it will cost us. You know, what if we did that? And yeah. and Christopher Dorner is a hero in my book. Uh, John Brown's a hero, and John Brown committed murders. But in in a broader sense of the definition, they weren't. It's like casualties in a war. And make no mistake about it, if the United States doesn't deal with this issue, I'm telling, I'm calling out, especially to corporate leaders, to government leaders, especially white leaders. Deal with this issue now, or there will be either um, a conflagration that's literal or one that happens to our souls that that won't be as visible. But I think I think it I think the, the, the stakes could not be higher. And whatever violence happens, you know, the thing about nonviolent action is we teach it, we preach it, we do it, not for its own sake, but to avoid violence. Mm -hmm. Guess what? If those avenues aren't taken or aren't effective, then violence is not only inevitable, it's necessary. Right. Well, and that's a, white that's a, America needs to wake up to that fact and deal with this and deal with it now. And Christopher Dorner, Trayvon Martin, and those are only the two that have. I mean, I mean, there there's there's significant major cases, but I also want to give justice and give respect to all those cases that are happening day in and day out. But it's happened for 400 years. Sean Bell. I mean, we can sit here and tick off the list. 
And that, that's a that's how many a will it take? How many yeah, will it take? Yeah, uh, we've been asking that question, Mike, for 28 years on these airwaves. With some well, of if a white boy from Topeka, Kansas, who grew up in a white conservative evangelical environment, uh, can get a glimpse of what needs to happen, maybe there's hope. Yeah. Well, I'm hope. I am hoping that we will continue to talk strong, and to and to raise our voices in hope and in courage and that we will shore up our character in this country those of us who are who believe in the in in the right of the human spirit and the right of the human uh of a human place for a place for our humanity in this country Michael Blevin it has been a pleasure and I do want to once again extend my condolences to you in the death of your mother um uh for you know she is Thank you. she was the witness uh as i always say mm-hmm. your good self and your good and your good works because mm. uh, a mother sees it my mother uh stood by me in 28 years of broadcasting and she didn't very often agree with me because she was of a different generation but she Mm -hmm. understood uh, this path and this journey and that is really important so uh, your mother and mine knew us well and didn't always agree with us but as someone said to me this week and I thought this went right to the heart of what I was feeling she said you have lost the one person in the world who thought you were perfect Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Of course she was wrong, but... <laughs> but I, I always say she thought I was perfect, but she never admitted it. <laughs> well, I never heard that from her lips. It's just her actions. <laughs> That's right. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Hey, Michael, thank you so very much. And thank you for what you're doing, and I hope to connect to more of your listeners. If there's any suggestions or ideas, uh, how I to bring a tipping to your point... Facebook page on our in our chat great. room. Great. Please contact me listeners if you have any ideas or 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 criticisms or suggestions. I I love collaborating. I love connecting and that's that's what I do to help this move forward. How can people get in touch with you, Michael? My email is michael.blev that's b as in boy l e v as in victor michael.blev the first four letters of my last name at gmail.com Facebook and uh my cell phone number five zero three nine five six six seven two zero. Again, that's 503-956-6720. Remember, people, research, educate, and act. That's right. Michael, thank you so much, and we look forward to you coming back at Our Common Ground, and we look forward to you to. joining us each Saturday night at 10 p.m. here where we speak truth to power, transforming truth to power, one podcast at a time. Thank you for being with us tonight. All coming ground. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time.
Well, good evening. This is Janice Graham, and this is Our Common Ground. Thank you so much for being with us tonight at Our Common Ground. We're here each Saturday night, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll be listening for you. Wishing you peace and power in the new week.